it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Infinite complacency. People went to and fro the earth about their little affairs. Serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, binning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. You live in Thailand, and since 2008, you have been conducting your own private investigations and expeditions into the unknown hominids that may reside in the remote regions of the Asian continent. Uh, You have traveled to Indonesia, Nepal, India, Malaysia, China, and Australia. Can you let everybody know what got you interested in this type of research? Well, first of all, I I was raised in Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay, so I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest, and growing up there, you you can't be in, you can't avoid being influenced by cryptids. I mean, they're everywhere. So as a kid, you know, you, you hear about Bigfoot, you hear about Sasquatch, you hear about Ogopogo, the lake monster, you hear about Caddy the sea serpent, you hear about Thunderbirds. So even at an early age, I was exposed to this kind of stuff, and so it was, it was always in the back of my mind to kind of do an expedition one day somewhere. So I always had this idea one day, maybe, you know, if I could get the money, if I could write the right location, I could probably do my own expeditions. But that was almost like 20 years later, basically. So then so, your, uh, your work, your professional, uh, the side of your job took you to Thailand, and then it just kind of flowered from there to go ahead and, and use the area that you were already living in? Yeah, because I had been reading about this for decades, you know, and then with the age of the Internet coming around, I started doing a little bit more research. And initially, I was kind of blown away. There's so much cool stuff happening. But over a few years, I started to realize that some of these expeditions weren't really as good as they could have been that other people were doing. I told myself, yeah, I'm going to actually do these expeditions. There's no reason why I shouldn't be doing them. Because in some ways, they're more fun than a beach holiday and also cheaper. And you end up in some very amazing locations. Right. So, and I know we're going to go down a nice list of different Asian hominids, and we're going to start with the Orang Pendek. Was that your first expedition, the, the first one that you executed, was for Orang Pendek? No. Well, my goal when I first went to Asia was I was going to research the Orang Dalam 
the Orang Mawas, the Malaysian Bigfoot. Okay, and that's the kind of most, for me, that's the most intriguing one in Asia. And uh, a couple of uh, kind of investigations and expeditions were down into southern Malaysia. But after interviewing a lot of people and, you know, and talking to people and trekking, and, uh, nobody was seeing this thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody was reporting it for almost uh, you know for three or four years, and I just kind of ended up getting into kind of uh, kind of uh, kind of you know dead ends, and I wasn't sure where to look, so I decided hey, I'll put that away. And then another thing happened uh, in 2013. There was a whole bunch of reports on the internet on American-based websites that they had found tracks. So I actually went down to that place, down to the plantation, and beer tracks. Okay, so I was down there, and you know, the, the park rangers showed up. Uh, you know, the local media showed up there for a few hours discussing. You know, this Orang Dalam, Orang Mawas, and they they just told me they didn't believe in it. And at the same time, I was always longer there to set my trail cams, but unfortunately, I was kicked out. Mm. So that kind of for me was kind of the end, at least the recent end for Orang Dalam expeditions and investigations. That's really too bad because I, that's one of the cryptids on the list that most closely resembles maybe the American Bigfoot because it's closer to 10 feet tall and of course bipedal and very dark hair. Is there any reddish hair reports for that in the Mawas? The guy that discovered it on Mawas, you know, let the Western world know about it. He's actually based in Bangkok. Okay. So back in 1970, I sent you those photos. He found an amazing trackway in the middle of the jungle, and he had been researching for quite a few years. But most of the descriptions are, it's, you know, kind of red to brown to black hair. And of course, it's incredibly tall, around 10 up to 12 in height, with massive 20-inch tracks. But uh, like I said, there haven't been any credible reports for almost a decade now. That's too bad. Why, why do you think that is, then? Why do you think the report stopped for that? Well, you know, the funny thing is I was down in the area about two years ago and I talked to uh, an office with the National Park Board and they were telling me there are dozens of uh, NGOs active in that park. Uh, there's probably a hundred trail cams out there because mm. they're looking for Sumatran rhinos and they told me they hadn't found anything for quite a few years even regarding the rhino and zero in terms of Orang Dalam. That's too bad. So it's... And this is actually a very remote area. Law, you just can't hike into this area. You need special permits and so on. And uh, so if these environmental groups with hundreds of trail cams weren't finding anything, then what's the chance of me finding something? I read online that the locals would call it the Snaggletooth uh, Ghost. Where, where do you think that, uh, that nickname came from? Well, the thing is, though, when I was down there talking to the rangers, they, they told me that the indigenous people, the Orang Asli, believe it to be a spirit. Mm. And I think in a lot of these places, uh, about half the people will claim or believe that these, these, these hominids are, kind of, are, are paranormal. Well, this also goes with uh, Orang, Orang Pendic as well. So about half the population, or half the local population believe, okay, this is a real you know, biological creature, while the other half say it's some kind of a spirit animal. Yeah, and we'll definitely be getting into that. Why were you kicked out of Malaysia? Was it because you were there trying to investigate this? Well, the thing is, there there seems to be a problem now. Whenever you mention a world trail camp, okay, that means you're doing research. You're not just hiking. As a result, if you're doing research, you need special permits and you have to pay special fees and so on. So that's becoming quite an issue now. Is you know, I mean, the best thing to do is not even mention you're, you're setting up trail camps. 
not even mm. mention you're looking for a hominid. You're just out there, you know, doing some, you know, bird watching. Right. Some really big bird watching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, this is exactly what happened to me in April of this year. Because usually Indonesia has been pretty good. You just walk in there, you pay your fee, and nobody bothers you. But in places like Malaysia, where it's very, the national parks are very well structured. They have like zone A, zone B, zone C, and each zone has its own park rangers. Mm. So it's quite difficult to do, uh, you know, projects independently. So what exactly happened with that? You were actually in the park, and you they basically saw you setting up trail cams, and then that started the problem? We found a plantation, I found the owner, and before you know it, the media show rangers show up. And then I suggested, well, it would be great if I could at least photograph this tapir with a trail cam. And they said, no, because it would be research, even though we weren't in a national park around the guy's, you know, private land. And uh, so they said no. All right. So, yeah, I know you want to talk a lot, and so do I, about your most recent trip. And you went in April. And you were studying and looking for the Orang Pendek. So let's go there. Right. Okay, let's talk about Orang Pendek. Well, in some ways, for me, it's kind of like the original Bigfoot. Okay, I mean, this, this thing was being researched over 100 years ago. So for me, this one has the longest pedigree of all the hominids in the world. And so for that reason, it's been of keen interest to me. And also, it's the only one in Asia that's consistently still producing, you know, reports on a regular basis. And can you give a description for everybody, the most common description of the Orang Pendek? Well, this is a strange thing. Now, a lot of the classic books, something around four to five feet tall, and a long mane, okay, long, long hair. And this is the often one that you'll see on, if you, if you Google Orang Pendek images, you'll see this creature kind of like, like Orangutan with long hair, okay? That's kind of the classic description. It's kind of slender, four to five feet tall, kind of reddish hair, reddish brown hair with a long, long mane. Have you seen those pics probably on the internet? And where would people usually see these creatures? This is strange. I first started out, I was doing deep jungle treks. Okay, I was spending like 12 days in really remote jungle. And, you know, you would see lots of wildlife with no orange appendix. And after interviewing about a dozen individuals, almost nobody had ever seen it in the jungle. They always see it in the plantations. So basically, my last two expeditions, I was more focused on plantations as opposed to doing deep jungle tracks. So most of the sightings that occurred, you know, close to villages on the fringes of plantations where they meet kind of secondary and primary forest. And is that most likely because they're coming down for food source? So a lot of people believe that these kind of they're they're more active around these plantations during the rainy season, uh, and as a result, you know, I've I've last two expeditions I've just been basically focusing on these remote plantations that border these primary and uh, uh, you know secondary rainforests or what's left of them in, in in Sumatra. And when you say remote, how remote? Uh, the, what someone that's never been to the rainforest like you, wh- what can we relate to that? How how far are you going? into the rainforest. Well, well, the thing is, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so my interpretation of remote is a little bit different. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not like you're in Pacific Northwest, okay? We have to go, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles to get somewhere, okay? So a lot of the villages are, you know, at least 30, 40 years old. So, you know, they're not that hard to get to if you have a car, and then you have to hike maybe, you know, an hour or two to get to the end of the plantation where it borders the rainforest. Mm. 
And the interesting thing is a lot of people in Indonesia, a lot of these plantation workers, they use motorbikes. So for them, it's actually not that far getting from there, from their, from their village to their actual plantation, to their, actually plot of, to their plot of land. And before we get more into the reports of the Orang Pendek, can you describe to me the, the normal weather of the area and maybe the substrate and, and what kind of foliage is going on there? Right. Now, uh, this area, this is called the Karinchi uh, region of, of central Sumatra. Now, this is right on the equator, basically. It's one degree off, one, be- mm-hmm. one degree below the equator. So this is basically your classic equatorial rainforest, okay? So they basically have two seasons. They've got a rainy season and they've got a dry season, which can also be a little bit wet, okay? And most of the area is highland and uh, rainforest, meaning it's above, uh, above 3,000 feet or 1,000 meters okay so it's, it's hot during the day but at the nighttime it kind of cools down a bit to say maybe you know seven degrees or so so when you were there you were just there in April what were the temperatures like and I'm assuming it's extremely humid there yeah, it's very humid and if, because of my work schedule I love these tr- treks I've done have been during the rainy season and yeah it, it was very and, we, and that was one of the issues is we were looking for tracks but we had we had massive electrical storms at night mm. okay so that was a big issue, and in the morning there would just be mud everywhere. You'd have to get trek through that, so it would be almost impossible to find something on the tracks. Even though the, the locals were telling us they had a string of sightings just a few before we arrived. But uh, yeah, it's very, very wet. The train. I mean, if it's, uh, I mean, when it's raining, there's mud everywhere. Like, they don't have sidewalks, right? And a lot of times they use these motorbikes, and they kind of dig into the trail. So that makes it even really even muddier. And if it were just being walked on, so they get motorbikes cutting through. So it's kind of like just a little, little deep, almost like a little ditch, basically. We, I was kicked out after five days, and we went to Plan B. I always kind of, I always have a Plan B plan when I trek. So we were basically, uh, we found, we were on the vol- Karinchi volcano on the north face, which hasn't been explored. The last 20 years, there's been massive expansion of plantations. So, and there were, weren't any recent sightings from that area for like almost 20 years. So as a result, I decided to focus on the north face of the mountain. And yeah, so we were basically, after the first day trekking, we met some plantation workers, and they told us there had been a string of of Orang Pendix sightings about uh, a mile away mm. from our current location. So basically what we did, we went back to, our, went back to the town, got supplies, and the next day we trekked out to this uh, location, and, we, and the plantation on there let us stay at his shelter. So we basically set up a shop in his shelter on the field with the intent of staying there for basically two weeks. Okay, that was the plan. And uh, so we had a lot of people coming up to us talking about these uh, about their encounters in the last couple of months and in, in the past. So we were very, very optimistic about getting something. But after five days, so maybe the same people that were coming up to you and, and giving reports, somebody leaked that you were there looking for this thing. So, yeah, so what happened is, like, you know, I mean, word spread, spreads quickly in these kind of communities, right? I mean, there's a foreigner here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think any, there was, I mean, this is an area where nobody visits because it's not on the main trekking route, which is on the southern slope of the mountain, on the, off the volcano. So basically, we, you know, we had permission from the landowner. We could stay in the shelter. And this guy, and, and there was about three or four villages that were extremely, extremely helpful. But what happened, apparently, maybe we upset a couple of people. Okay, I think that's what happened. Is we upset a couple of people. They didn't want me being there, and they contacted the rangers, and they told us to leave, despite the fact that we were outside of the you know, national park boundary. 
So then how long were you there past plan A into plan B? Well, we were there for five days, and the interesting thing is, I mean, we had so many reports, so many people coming up to us and telling us about about their sightings. And also we had one guy came up to us in the middle of, of a thunderstorm at midnight, back all the way from his house to our shelter where we were staying at, and he said he has a plan. He knows how we can get this guy out of the forest. Hmm. You know, call him out of the forest and set up cameras and photograph him. Okay, so a lot of these people were very, very helpful there. But thing is, I did have I did have four cameras set up for almost five days, so that was a good thing. And did you so, did you uh, capture anything on those cameras? No, uh, just a lot of thunder and stuff. Uh, well, basically, what happened? There were three fields that we were that were apparently being visited by these orang appendix. There were three separate fields within, let's say, a radius of two miles or so. So the the main field that's where I was focusing my active my you know the cameras was on this main field. It was an abandoned chili apparently chili field, and it was right on the border of the national park and this mount other mountain. Okay, and so that was apparently the hot spot where most of this occurred. So I had the cameras there for almost four days, well actually almost five days set up. And once again, a lot of storms, you know, uh, electrical thunderstorms at night. So uh, you know, we, you know, even if there were Creatures that be coming out in that kind of turn, in that kind of uh, weather conditions, unfortunately. Dan, would you mind sharing what the locals' plan was for bringing them out and down to you? Okay, well, first of all, the locals, they have a different name for the creature here. Okay, uh, uh, they call it Orang Itam. Hmm. Okay, and Orang means person, Itam means dark or black. And these creatures, uh, so apparently they were quite uh, widely known in the area. I mean, I, I talked to one plantation guy, uh, peanut uh, plantation, a small private peanut, uh, peanut plantation. He had been there since 1989, and he's, he had never seen one, but he told me the tracks would regularly show up on his almost on a daily basis on his plantation. But about three or four years ago, he decided to put like a little fence around the plantation. So apparently after that, uh, the, no more tracks. But regarding the guy's plan, this guy said that I was using bananas as bait. You know, I would set up the trail camera and I was throwing some bananas. And he was telling me I have to use eggs. So did you see any evidence of them while you were there? Well, this is the thing. is that We were looking for tracks, and I figured, okay, if we can't photograph them, at least we'll, we'll try to find some tracks. But once again, we had these storms almost every night. Mm. So we didn't find any tracks. Uh uh, then uh, when the rangers did come, and before they kicked me out, we briefly talked about Orang Pendic. Because I told them there I was kind of like, you know, bird watching in nature and so on. And they kind of started talking about Orang Pendic, and they told me they thought it was a myth. Like they weren't convinced. And this is, common, this is a common theme also, I guess, in the States, where the people, the park rangers don't believe in it, but the locals do. Or are they just told to say they don't believe it? Oh, yeah, exactly. Or maybe they don't want you there investigating it. I mean, this is yeah. what's been told to me by several researchers uh, that sometimes, you know, in, you're in the foreign country, they don't want you there. They don't want you doing research. They don't want you kind of, you know, dabbling in this kind of stuff. So, so unfortunately, we had to leave. But, you know, I mean, there were so many stories uh, coming up from the villagers there. That definitely, you know, I'd like to go back in the near future again because, you know, recent or impending sightings are quite rare. Dan, would you mind telling the story, actually, and sorry to interrupt you, but before I lose the thought, I read on your blog that uh, your guide, uh, Intanto, uh, Ian, he had an encounter 25 years ago. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, uh, well, that's the one of the 
I just have to check with these guys, with him because a lot of guys, they're skeptical. You know, a lot of times when you go there, they don't really, I mean, I had a guy quite a few years ago, who was just a young guy, he was like in his early 20s, he didn't really believe in it. So he was kind of more interested in just kind of making, you know, extra money and stuff. You know, so he was like, we'd go to the places, but he wasn't really concerned about looking for it. But this guy actually had encountered one around early 19, around 1992, apparently, on the southern slope of the volcano. While he was, you know, was, he was a plantation worker, and apparently spotted something for about 30 seconds looking at him. And so I hired him because I knew, when he told me about this, I knew this guy was serious about looking for these things as well. Okay, so he was, he was quite interested in trying to solve this mystery as well. So, yeah, this guy's pretty straightforward. You know, he's, he's a religious guy, and mm-hmm. he's quite very honest. And, uh, yeah, so I, know I believe he saw something. And the interesting thing is he, he, he took me to other people in the village where, where they had, uh, in the village who had also encountered it. And one of the most, in, uh, and one of the most interesting encounters took place in around 1982, where one guy, one plantation worker, was able, able to observe about 20 minutes. Wow, that's a long time. What was yeah, it doing yeah. in the 20 minutes? Well, basically, I mean, I mean, most of the encounters are very fleeting. You just see something for a few seconds as it splits into the jungle mm-hmm. and runs away. But this guy was on the slopes of the southern volcano around 1982, and basically uh, there was like a plantation, I think it was a potato plantation, and there was a dry, uh, dry stream bed, okay? And then there was a primary rainforest behind the dry stream bed. Apparently... He saw this thing walking down the stream bed very, very slowly for almost like 15 or 20 minutes. Like it was fishing maybe or something? No, no. It was just kind of, it was kind of eating something. And then kind of, mm-hmm. when it saw him, it kind of walked down. It, kind of, it was kind of on a slope, on the, I guess on the bank of the stream bed. It kind of saw him and then walked down slowly to the dry bed and kept on walking, you know, very, very slowly for about 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of went up the other bank and into the forest. And, uh... So he had observed it almost, you know, so for this, you know, 20 minutes almost. So it was a very, he had a very detailed account of what he saw. And, you know, going back to the rangers for a moment, has there, has anyone talked to a ranger and the ranger slipped and said, yes, I've seen a track or yes, I think they're real or yes, I've seen one. Has there ever been an account of that? Well, the, you know, the funny thing is, though, is that's the reason I like trekking in Indonesia is you don't really meet the rangers very often. Mm. Okay. In all of my treks, I've only met them at the beginning of the trek. And that was it. I didn't see them for like 10 days until I got back. So this is the first time where actually rangers have come to look for you. Okay? Which is kind of unheard of for me in Indonesia. Because once you, once you pass that, once you pay the fee, you're in the forest, you know, nobody's going to bother you. Okay? And secondly, we weren't actually even in the national park. We were on a, on a, on a kind of farming community. That really makes you wonder, doesn't it? What, what's going yeah. on there and what they know. Right, and so there was no real reason, but, you know, I had permission from the landowner, so so once again, it could be a case where they just don't want investigating this. It could be that simple. And also, Dan, you mentioned to me that Dr. Meldrum, who has probably one of the biggest collections of track casts, probably in the world, because he gets them sent to him right. by everybody from all over the right. all over the world, he has in his possession what he thought was an orang pendant cast or casts, but now he's he's questioning those. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, yeah, this is the strange thing. Now, uh... When I first started out this in 2011, my first trek out into into Sumatra, uh, historically the Orang Pendic tracks are very human-like. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, very human-like. So all the classic literature and the first tracks are described around 1910 by a doctor by the name of Dr. Jacobson, who eventually wrote a book about it. Okay, a lot of his material was then later used by Hevelmans and Sanderson in their books. Okay. So the first tracks were described way back around 1910. They were very human-like, okay, with a non-opposable big toe, okay. And subsequently, all the tracks up until 1999 were human-like tracks, okay. And then what happened around 1999, uh, Western cryptozoologists started coming out of the jungle with these really bizarre-looking casts, supposedly made by Orang Pendix, okay. And these tracks had uh, an opposable toe, meaning the toe was on the side like of a primate. Okay, like uh, orangutans and chimps and and, and uh, gorillas. Right. So subsequently, all the casts made since 1999 have this toe on the side. Okay. So when I first started researching it. The historic the tracks are very human-like, and now the casts are the creatures. Historically, the tracks are very human-like, and then since 1999, casts are appearing with this really bizarre. A very primitive uh, foot with a toe on the side, with an opposable hollux. So, what do you think, as far as the orang pendek? What do you think is the best evidence that they exist? Well, well, the thing is, is with these two. So, you know, there's two different types of tracks. Okay, so I, I came in there thinking, okay, there must be two creatures. But after interviewing over a dozen individuals, nobody has reported these tracks with a toe on the side. Nobody. Mm. Okay, and I've made diagrams and stuff. You know, I, I've made diagrams of all sorts of feet diagrams of all sorts of hominids, and I've laminated them, and I, I always drag this into the forest with them, and I show, you know, the locals what this thing looked like, what the tracks looked like, and everybody's pointing kind of like a human foot, okay, being described as a child's foot, like a child eight or nine years old, about six or seven inches in length, possibly with a larger toe, so I'm pretty sure that these, these casts, they're not authentic. So do you think that we have any one cast? Does anybody have any one cast that you think is authentic? No, the thing is, because nobody has uh, a classic orang pendant cast. Nobody's ever made one. I suppose okay. that has a lot to do with the the weather there and the substrate. Like, by the time well, anybody found it, it would probably have been uh, washed into obscurity. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, even when it's a dry season, you have a lot of foliage on the ground. Right. Okay? 
Oh, it's like either it's super, super wet and muddy. You're not going to find anything that something like, looks like something wet here, but it could have been anything. Or, you'll, or if it, it is a little bit drier, you've got a lot of dead leaves, foliage on the ground. And these creatures are massive. They're not 800-pound. They're something about 100 to 100 pounds, possibly. Right. So, so interestingly, since 1999, all the cast have been on this really bizarre-looking foot, which nobody that I've talked to has ever seen. You know, and so, so I'm pretty sure that either these casts, either they're kind of misrepresentation of something or they're just basically fake, unfortunately. Because I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure about this because I've interviewed so many individuals and they kind of laugh at me when I show them these tracks with toe on the side. That's, that's, not, what thought, that's not what an orange kind of track looks like. And they're pretty adamant about that. So that's happened, I mean, numerous times. You've showed them a track oh, and they're like, where did you get that? That's not what I saw. Even this time, I actually I used, I used actually to even make it more detail. I used screen capture shots oh, wow. of real, of you know, of cast, you know, right. on a website on the, on the internet, and was showing. Okay, this is what the experts are saying in North America that Orange Panic track. No, no, that's all wrong. That's not what track looks like. You mentioned that they would come down for these eggs, and that's what the locals said that you should use to bring them in along with bananas. Are these guys? Are they? Are they herbivores? Are they omnivores? Are there any reports of them coming down and I don't know what kind of, uh, quote-unquote, cattle or livestock they have there, if any. Um, is there any reports of them coming down for any kind of meat, protein? The physical description of these creatures would probably indicate that they are, they are uh, herbivores. Hmm. Okay, because one of the most common characteristics, when we talk about the physical characteristics, one of the most common characteristics shared by almost all eyewitnesses is that the creature has a, a very belly. And this is mentioned by almost everybody that it has like a stomach. Okay? So almost everybody talked to yeah, they saw this creature. It's not like this slender thing that's often illustrated in right. some of the older books, but it, it's got a pot belly. Okay, so that's the first thing you notice. It has a pot belly, and the other thing that people notice is that it has incredibly wide shoulders. Okay, the guy who saw it for 20 minutes, he said the shoulders are about 50% wider than of a normal human being. Oh my gosh. Yeah, in my mind, yeah, I so see the Arrain Pendek uh, is very slight. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's not what's being described by, you know, in the last, what, since 2011, since I've been there. What's being described is something very robust, very powerfully built, okay, wide shoulders, it has a pot belly. So that's what you were mentioning to me when you sent the the image that uh, both of us have passed back and forth of the Orang Pendek is that you needed a couple of things changed on that picture because that's what I have in my mind because that's usually if you Google Orang Pendek, it's very slight, including the shoulders. So that completely changes what that creature right. looks like. Yeah, well, you have to remember a lot of these reports are old. I mean, a lot of the stuff was researched, you know, decades ago. Right. But uh, everybody I talked to, and and they're all—I mean, maybe the the color is different, but they all—they're always saying it has broad shoulders, it has a pot belly, it has uh, you know limbs, the arms and legs have basically human proportions. And the other strange thing that's mentioned all the time is that whenever it's moving or walking bipedally, it's always grasping out for branches. And this has been uh, this has been observed on several occasions. So when it's running or walking, it's, it's kind of grabbing branches for support or balance. Is there any stories of them being aggressive with a person they may have accidentally run across? Well, I, I most of the people they're not afraid of them. I have one story though. Uh, this is from the Rawa Bento Swamp Forest. 
uh, a villager uh, about a couple of years ago, he claimed that he was about hiking about an hour from the village, okay, not that far an hour, and he went into a clearing and he saw two of these creatures, a female, a female and a male, okay? Apparently, they kind of turned around and snarled at him, okay? So what this guy did is he climbed up the nearest tree he could find, he climbed up to about five or six feet and observed them for about two or three minutes as they walked the clearing and then into the forest. So, but most people consider them to be non-threatening. It's not like our American Bigfoot where people are like, they're throwing things at me or they're, do they knock on trees and things like that? Like they do in here, supposedly here in America? Well, I had an encounter, well, it was an encounter, but I had a very bizarre experience uh, a couple of years ago when I was trekking a different area in that region. Something was stomping on a dead log. Okay, so this is a... It happened like three times, happened at 10 p.m., uh, 4 p.m., and uh, 6 p.m. So basically, something was, seemed to be stomping on a dead, rotten log. You'd hear like one or two stomps, and then it would stop, and a few hours later, another two stomps. So, hmm. And this, this was actually in kind of orang-pendant country as well, a very remote area uh, just behind the Carinchi uh, Lake. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's possible they, they might. Might have, might have been more panic. Initially, I thought it was just some villager who had trekked up in the middle of the night and was setting up camp. Okay, but in the morning, I had a camera. There was nothing there. But uh, yeah, there, there's there's no there's no history or you know historical uh, reports of them. You know, you know, doing tree knocks or throwing stones or anything like that. And what did you go check out that area where you thought the sounds were coming from? I had a camera there. I had a camera there got any signs of something of a camp or anything like that. Mm. And this is actually a very, very difficult trek because what happened, we ran out of food about two days before that. So we were all not in a very good mood. <laughs> I bet. Trek. Yeah, so basically I was doing one trek. It was up a very remote river valley called uh, the Tavir River. Okay. And I had five guys with me, and they all decided to eat. Basically, we were going to go for 10 days, and after like basically after seven days, we had no food left. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so we basically, we were trekking. I mean, I, I can handle it. I mean, you know, mm. I mean, in Indonesia, people are used to eating regularly, like three, four times a day. Right. You know, how, you know how it is in North America. We're all dieting, trying to watch our weight. So we all kind of used to not eating and stuff. Well, at least I am. But in, in, in Indonesia, they eat. You know, obviously, you know, you know, Asia, they eat, they eat. So they have to have their three meals and stuff. So what happened? All the food disappeared. So we still had to trek almost for two days, basically without food. So this was at the tail end of the trek, and everybody was hungry. They were all kind of nervous. I was, you know, I, I was happy that we were within six hours of the, of the nearest village, so I was quite happy about that. Yeah. But, but I did set up the cameras there, uh, and I said I heard something stomping on a dead log on three different occasions, which I thought was very, very strange. But, I mean, there's no proof. It could have been somebody or, you know, it could have been some other animal. There's, you know, there's also wild boar in that area as well. Mm. And they, they have a habit of, of digging through rotten logs, looking for beetles and stuff and larvae. So it could have been something else for sure. And the, I'm assuming the volcano, the Karinchi, is that how you say it? Yeah, Karinchi, Gunung Karinchi. Karinchi. Uh, uh, the volcano uh, is the, the picture that you sent. And where is the, so the lake, I'm assuming, is at the very foot of one of the sides of this volcano? Well, no, no, this is, this is this region. Basically, what you have is you have a volcano, and then you have like a swamp land, and then you have the lake. Mm. Right, so basically, I mean, there's a lot of water that rains a lot. So basically, what you have, I mean, historically, there were like three hot spots for orang pendant sightings, okay? Three hot spots. Uh, the most famous hot spot, or the, the home of orang pendant, by the locals, is, is considered to be the It's called the Lake of Seven Peaks, mm. okay? 
And this is the highest lake in Southeast Asia. It's almost uh, 7,000 feet above sea level. And it's about 800 feet deep. It's a crater lake. Okay? So this has, for decades, been considered the home of this Orang Pendic. And subsequently, almost all the expeditions that you'll see when you're watching TV have been conducted on that lake. So there's been a lot of emphasis, a lot of research on that single, on that lake for many, many years now. So when do you think the next time you'll, you'll be able to make it out there and study the Orang Pendic? Well, right now, I mean, I've done five of these expeditions, and uh, definitely there's something happening on that plantation. I'm hoping to investigate it. Probably, I'm going to, next couple of years, but I'm going to take a break from Orang Pendic and focus on other things, because there's other reports coming out of Indonesia as well. And uh, so I'm going to basically take a break for maybe a year or two and then maybe probably come back again. Do some of your contacts there, do they even care about the Internet where they can contact you and say, hey, I have I have new activity going on here? Do you have contacts like that there? Well, I have a couple of contacts. But once again, you know, a lot of people, times people are busy. They've got their own thing happening. Uh, but then again, there's very, very few reports unless you really dig for them. Mm. Okay, I mean, for example, the last string of reports, even my guy didn't know anything about it because he had never been to that area. Okay, so, you know, so I, I have a habit of dragging people to areas where they've never actually been to. Really? Even the locals? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was, I mean, I mean, what I, I often do is I often just look at maps for, just look at maps, you know, satellite maps from Google. And I look, okay, well, if these orange panics were seen here 20 years ago, where could they have moved now? So that's why I determined this north, uh, the north face of the volcano, because nobody goes there. Nobody's ever set up trail cameras there. Mm. And my guy only went there, like, the day before I arrived. He went to check it out. We had never actually been there. Oh, my goodness. Right. So, I mean, you've, you've got to kind of look. I mean, you, you have to kind of guess. Kind of, I mean, you have to kind of do a little bit of your own research on the Internet, kind of find out, well, you know, the sightings were happening down here. They haven't been there for 20 years. Why bother going back? There's not, nobody's right. seen anything for 20 years. So it's okay. Where have they moved? Well, if they were seen on the southern face, why not try the northern face of the volcano? You know? So you, you have to be a little bit creative sometimes with these locations. You just don't want to be going back to the Lake of Seven Peaks where everybody's been to already, you know. And so you, you really need, you need to kind of look at the maps and kind of look at the kind of historic and, you know, reports and then try to figure out where could these creatures have moved, actually, or have migrated. Now, Dan, I know you have your hypothesis on each one of these creatures. So before we move from one to the other, I'll ask you what your hypothesis is. So what is it on the Orang Pendek? Okay, well, uh, def, I'll tell you what, definitely what it, not, what it isn't, okay? A lot of people are saying it's a hobbit. You know the hobbits from Flores? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely not a hobbit because hobbits were tool makers. They had fire. They hunted. They had communities, okay? And there is not one report that I've ever heard of or even read about where an Orang Pendek had a tool or something. Mm. Okay, or it, mm-hmm. or it made shelters. You know, I mean, I did hear one bizarre story where some of the local villagers claimed that it had a magic potion, which it rubbed on its body, gave it supernatural strength and power. Okay, uh, but there's there's no reports of it having care of it using tools or making shelters. I, I talked to a lot of guys who spent you know three decades doing some deep jungle treks, hunting and so on, and they've never encountered uh, any type of shelter or anything made by these creatures. Okay, so it's not a hobbit. Uh, my initial hypothesis was it was some kind of a Siamang gibbon. Okay, mm-hmm. some kind of a gibbon mm-hmm. that had adapted to bipedalism. Or so. That was my initial, uh, initial hypothesis. But when we look at the tracks, which I mentioned are human, 
Now, the problem with these casts, the problem with these casts that are popping up the last couple of years is that if that creature did exist, it would be semi-aboreal, okay? Meaning it would be living up in the trees, spending some time up in the trees, and that's never been reported. And Dan, as far as where they live, you mentioned the trees. Where do you think the orang pendek, is there caves there that they could have access to or some underground dwelling or they, I mean, where, where might they be sleeping and living? Well, I, I think they're probably just ground-dwelling, you know, primates. Uh, maybe they make nests, maybe they don't. Nobody's ever found a nest, mm-hmm. okay? So uh, my, my theory is, I mean, uh, it, it can't be a boreal because the tracks are human. So my, my theory is it's some very archaic form of hominin, something like in a, some very primitive form of uh, Solopithecus, okay? Something very, very, very primitive that doesn't make tools, doesn't make shelters, but at the same time walks bipedally. So I guess it's not that strange if if they did build some kind of a nest that no one would run across it because, like you said, even your guide had not been on that side of the volcano. Like no, nobody tends to go on that side or, or this trail or that whatever area that you might be researching. So it's not that out of the realm that these things just get washed away or they they move or tear it down and nobody gets to see it. It's possible. I mean, it's possible that they kind of migrate a little bit, okay? But uh, nobody's ever, you know, I mean, I've, I've talked to some guys, you know, 20, 30 years hunting and trapping. Nobody's ever found anything mm. to resemble some kind of a shelter, nobody, or a nest. Yeah. Okay, I, do have one, I do have one report of a guy who found a cave where he thought something might have been sleeping there, okay? But that could have been maybe some other animal. Okay? Right. But he had a bizarre feeling that maybe Orang Pandig was using this cave. He just had a hunch, Okay, that's the only time, the only story I've heard where it might be sleeping in a cave. Is there, is but, there a lot uh, of caves there, Dan? Uh, uh, there's, I mean, these are volcanoes, and so yeah, you you find you find caves, but there's just so much jungle there that it'd yeah. be hiding some some gully somewhere. I mean, the thing, I mean, uh, a lot of people just uh, they stick to the main trail, or if you want to call it a trail, but um, there's, and there's so many places for them to hide. Another thing is, you know, I was talking. Uh, to my guide about this. I mean, even if you're the most stealth, you know, jungle tricker, you're still going to be making noise. You're going to be slashing with your machete. Right. So they could hear you a mile away. You know, I mean, if you're really in deep jungle, you just can't walk through, walk through the jungle. You need to be breaking stuff, you know, uh, snapping branches, cutting down, uh, slacking down trees with your machete. So you'll be making a lot of noise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. So that's one of the reasons that you, you probably won't encounter it in the forest, because by the time, you know, it'll hear you a mile away. As opposed, when you're in a plantation, there's always a chance you might be able to sneak up on one. Bumping back to the Orang Mawas, or Dalam, uh, the Malaysian yeah. Bigfoot, I, I read online also that in 2006, some of the, the authorities there, basically they launched an official expedition to prove the creature's existence and as far as anybody knows right that's the first time that's actually happened well the thing is now uh there were there were a couple of expeditions down there 
2006, I don't think anybody came up with anything except one TV show came up with tracks. Okay, I think 2006, 2007. And my inside source who was on that program said they, those tracks were faked. Oh, that's a shame. Not surprising, though, right? Yeah, and so basically there haven't been any credible tracks. The ones that I investigated back in 2013 were top-tier tracks. The mm-hmm. ones that are being publicized that were found on the show in 2000, I think it was about 2007 or so, those ones were actually faked. And the guy, and my contact actually walked off the, the, walked off the set because Aww. of that. He was just so upset okay, when he saw them faking yeah. those tracks. And so, yeah, so basically, that's one of the reasons I kind of dropped Orang Mawas, uh, actually Orang Dalam, which is the original name. I just kind of dropped it, but I actually might be, I might be going back to it uh, later this year because I do have some uh, interesting uh, kind of information about the original location of the tracks from 1970. Mm. Not many people know where they were actually, where, there's a photo, right? But no, not many people know where that photo was actually taken. I've got the exact location of those tracks. So I'm going to investigate that in person. I'm going to go down to the parks board and see if I can actually get into that area. Oh, that's wonderful. Point. Yeah, we got to keep that top secret. So what's your, what is your hypothesis then on, on Orang Dalam? Well, Orang Dalam, first of all, the, the Orang Dalam, the term actually means inside, person of the interior. Hmm. Okay, so it's, uh, they're using the word Mawas last 10 years or so, but the actual original name used by the natives is Orang Dalam, which means person of the interior. Because it's found slightly interior of the coast in southern southern Malaysia in Johor. Now, yeah, this is a strange one because it, you know it's reportedly ten to twelve feet tall, very shaggy. Uh, apparently, it uses urine, its own urine, it covers its body with its own urine to keep off the flies mm-hmm. and mosquitoes. Okay. Uh, another theory is that it lives on one mountain. I think it's called Gunung Besar, and it lives on this mountain. And it comes down during the dry season, apparently, to the river to get water. Okay, but in terms of hypotheses, this is a, this is a tough one because uh, you know what could it be? I mean, is it some uh, some kind of uh, you know some kind of Gigantopithecus that's bipedal? Is it some some you know, form of Homo erectus? Okay, as you know, Homo erectus was found all over Indonesia and Malaysia as well. So that, that's a very difficult one because there's very there's been very few reports you know for the last couple of years. And nobody's even actually seen it for a very long period of time. So it's like a glimpse of something in the forest for this one. Okay. I was just going to ask that. So what? So most of the reports are a glimpse of something bipedal, right. very tall, and mostly dark hair. Right. Now, the bizarre thing is, when I was in Sumatra in April, okay, one of the villagers, one of the older villagers, he told me that in 1972, on that same plantation where we were Station where we were, we were camping at and sitting up for us. He said, 1992, they found, they found 20 inch tracks on that same plantation. Oh my gosh. And, and a couple of days later, a guy saw a 13, 14 foot tall creature, Bigfoot like creature, walking through a grove or a forest of cinnamon trees. They plant cinnamon trees there. Hmm. So they saw this thing walking basically near the top of the trees, walking along this uh, cinnamon tree forest. Mm. And subsequently, they, they named it uh, Orang Tinggi. So Orang Tinggi would mean the tall person, okay? So, so there, is, there, there is a Sumatran equivalent to Orang Mawas, Orang Dalam, and it's known, you know, Orang Tinggi, or on the internet, it's often referred to as Orang Gadang. But once again, it's a very, very obscure cryptid that's, you know, it's probably seen a couple times in the last, you know, last 20, 30 years. Right. I don't want to seem biased, but I'm also 
much more interested in the more tall cryptids. I don't know why that is. Um, well, that, that's the whole thing with me. Was when I first came over here, it was like, okay, I'll be focusing on this Orang, Orang Maras, Orang Dalam. Mm-hmm. But, the thing is, um, but the thing is, Orang Pendig is the only one that's really producing consistent reports. I mean, each time right. I've been out there, there's been some guy, yeah, we saw it last year. We found tracks a few weeks ago. So it's always consistently producing some kind of tracks or sightings. Unlike Orang Dalam, there hasn't been anything serious since maybe 2008 or so. Right. Because I was in contact with one of the local researchers from Singapore who was researching it, or from southern Malaysia. And yeah, there hasn't been anything for years and years. Okay, but this Orang Panda gets consistently producing reports, so definitely there's something out there. And the other strange story I have related to Orang Pendik from that plantation, one of, uh, one of the villagers told me that around 1974, 1975, an Orang Pendik fell into a river during the mm-hmm. rainy season and was swept away. And then his body was deposited in an irrigation canal near a plantation. Okay, and about, and you know, dozens of villagers were able to view the bodies. So that's uh, oh another interesting, interesting story. Yeah, this is like from 19, so there's a lot, a lot of really cool stuff from the 70s, you know. So they told me that it, was, it, it fell off during the rainy season. They probably slipped into a raging river, and his body was, was deposited on, a, on a, some kind of irrigation ditch near a plantation. And they, they, they were, you know, villagers were able to look at the body for several days, and somehow just, somebody took it away. Were any of the witnesses, are they still alive? From the, the locals on this plantation. Uh. So a lot of times you'll hear stories, yeah. But this Orang, the, I mean... This Orang Tengi was told that had seen the tracks back in 1972. But once again, a long, long time ago, and since then there have been no subsequent reports. Yeah. The only thing they're reporting is this, these, uh, these Orang Intamas, they call them, you know, these short, little, you know, robust, and raiding the plantations. Well, let's move to the Chinese wild man, also known as the Yeren. Right. I don't know if you got that photo I sent you uh, a while back. Now, the Chinese Yeren, uh, I was actually in China for seven months, so I was able to investigate this and other things as well. And, yeah, I mean, that one's been documented. I mean, the Chinese have been researching this for decades, okay? They, they've been researching it for decades, and the biggest problem with this one is, as an independent researcher, is the northern part of the park, Senojia National Park, most of the, more, the northern part is off-limits to foreigners because there's military bases in that area. Mm. So, it's, so it's, I mean, I was actually, I was able to sneak in there. I was up in the northern part for, uh, for about a day before I was arrested by the cops. But, yeah, but I was able to get a snapshot of that year and picture. I'm not sure if, you, if I sent I, it to I you. I did, yeah. And yeah. If, if it's and okay, I'll put that in the show notes. Is that okay to, to share with everyone? Yeah, definitely. Actually, after the show, I'll send you some more pics that you can put on. Oh, okay? wonderful. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, so, and the interesting thing is, this, this year in the Chinese, and this is actually, uh, this year and it was basically on a billboard for the, for the Nature Museum, Museum of Natural History. No the, kidding. And uh, so basically, this description is quite different from, once again, from the, old, the classics that you see on the internet. Okay? And in this description, it's got long hair, it's got a mane, it almost, and it's probably some cold-weather species of Homo erectus, hmm. based on that drawing. Okay, as you know, Peking man, Homo erectus, did actually live in China, and this is very similar to that. It's about, it's man-sized, uh, apparently, from what, I, from, uh, from what I've heard from uh, other people who've investigated it, that uh, uh, it does actually make kind of beds from vegetation or mats, hmm. so kind of weave vegetation together to create kind of like little sleeping beds, sleeping mats. 
But once again, it's one of those things that's very difficult to do independently because you'd have to get permission from the government to get in there to do a proper investigation. Plus, like I said, the Chinese have been investing, investing for years. So you, when you say the Chinese are investigating, the Chinese government is or just independent scientists? I think basically it's all government-related, right? So, oh, I mean, anybody who's doing research, and I think in these countries, the governments are more open to this kind of stuff. So government scientists, are, you know, they're more open to actually, they're allowed to kind of investigate, investigate these things, as opposed mm. to, say, Canada or North America. If you're on a government payroll and you're investigating this, it's kind of, okay, that's not really professional, is it? Okay? That's kind of the attitude they have. Yeah, they, they'll pull your tenure if you start talking about Bigfoot, yeah. Exactly. But in places like the former Soviet Union and in China right now, I mean, there's a keen interest in this, and there there have been expeditions funded, you know, by the Soviets and by the Chinese. You know, the Soviets were exploring the Caucasus Mountains and Euro Asia back in the 20s and 30s. You know, and they were doing the hominid studies back starting in the late 50s as well. So, so in those places, yeah, it, it was kind of normal for government, you know, scientists to be involved in this kind of research. And uh, so once again, I mean, I, I'm thinking if, if the, 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 the Chinese scientists haven't found anything, and what's the chance of you finding something, going there for one or two weeks? It's going to be pretty, pretty close to nil, I think. Right. So what's Very the, what's the uh, common description of the urine? Well, basically, it's, it's man-like. Apparently, from the photo that I sent, it has a mane, uh, kind of reddish-brown hair. Uh, it, it apparently makes some kind of beds that it sleeps on, some kind of primitive structures. So it, it's highly intelligent. Now, the problem I have with it is, is that the area is not that big, okay? It's not the Pacific Northwest, and, you know, the whole park is crisscrossed with roads. Uh, there's villages in the park. There's, there's uh, like I said, military bases as well. So the area is not that wild, as you would expect, to hmm. kind of be a home to the, you know, a relic population of hominids. And I hate to keep asking the same question, but I guess I, I, not being in the in the area or ever having trekked there, again, is there caves there? Is there somewhere for these? You said it's not a big area, but is there other ways for them to hide? Yeah, there there are there's there there's uh, there are certain areas of the park where there are mountain ridges, uh, which could be there could be caves in these areas for sure. Okay, but once again, the area, it's not like the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Okay, basically, you can drive around this national park in several hours, just using public transportation. Okay, so basically, you could probably go around the national park in about probably four hours, even quicker if you had your own car. Okay. Mm. So, like I said, it's a national park, and it's crisscrossed with roads. Uh, there's the, the, the commercial part is in the south, and when I was there last time, they were building kind of a, like a super highway through the main valley. Oh, so boy. Yeah, so they could speed up and down, take photos of the scenery and so on. So it, it's not a very remote area, and like I said, there's, there's, it's very popular with the, you know, the, the, the domestic Chinese tourists. It's a very famous park, so it, it's quite busy. I was there in 2010, and from what I've seen on the maps recently, it's getting busier and busier, more construction going on. And so, yeah, so the habitat there is shrinking for sure. Oh, so they're, they're actually cutting through the forest to put this, this highway in. Yeah, it's still a valley. It's like a valley with, you know, mountains on the side, yeah. right? But they made the valley wider. There's a lot of hiking, there's a lot of teenagers out there, or you know, people at universities do the hiking, trekking, and so on. So it, it, it's a very popular park, except for that northern area, which is kind of restricted because of the bases. So, Dan, how about some of the reports for the urine? Is it mostly, again, fleeting glances, or is there any more substantial encounters with these things? 
Well, from the research I was doing, uh, there were some studies around 2008, 2009 in the northern part of the park. But once again, it's just something, a very quick glimpse of the creature. Okay, I mean, there are some older stories, like from dating from the 50s and 60s, where people have actually stared this thing, eye to, the eyeball of it for 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. But, uh, but there's nothing really recent. I mean, I've been researching, and there's nothing really recent. Even when I was there, you know, 2010, I was talking to people, and there was uh, nothing really recent in terms of reports. Well, let's move away from urine and get to one of my favorite things. But I think that in reading what you have sent and looking at the book that I recently got, um, My Search for the Yeti by Reinhold Messner, it's kind of dashed the hopes that it's anything like a Bigfoot or a uh, an orang pendek, and that is the Himalayan Yeti or Abominable Snowman. So let's let's right. move there a little bit. Right. I mean, I, I've been to the Himalayas on three separate occasions. Uh, the first time I was up uh, near the... Uh, the, the Chinese Tibetan border, okay, it was this called the, the state is called Yunnan province, and it borders with Tibet. So I was up in that area, and this is actually not far from where Messner, if you read his book, had his sighting, okay. But uh, then, secondly, my second trek was up into the Kachajunga region, okay, which is very famous for Yeti reports, especially in the 1950s, okay. And then my last trek was uh, about 20, 2012 was up into the Dalagiri area, which is another area where there's been reports historically. But yeah, but in terms of Yetis, I mean, Natal is incredibly busy these days in terms of tourism. Mm. Okay. And, you know, and there's a lot of people doing very long treks. I mean, I was up there and I met, you know, you know, couples in their mid fifties doing 30, 40 day treks through very remote areas. You know, they have a good team. They've got three or four porters. They've got an English speaking guide. So there's a lot of people trekking to extremely remote areas there. Okay, so there's a lot of tourism happening there. And at the same time, there's, there's almost nothing in terms of current reports. Well, what's, okay. a, what's the last report that you can, you can reference that's credi- well, at all last, credible? Well, I, I, when I was, I mean, the last one I heard was, but this was not, I mean, this was actually in Sikkim, uh, apparently in Sikkim 2009, which is in northern India, which borders uh, Nepal and Bhutan in Tibet to the north. Uh, there was a report there of people seeing something on a grassy slope. It's like mm. 2009. And this is, this is actually reported by, uh, by locals, not by foreigners. But uh, that's about it. I mean, there, I mean there, there haven't been any kind of you know, recent reports for years. There's, there haven't been even any photos or blob squatch videos, nothing. Uh, do you remember the snow wall video? Y- yes. Okay, that at first, first people thought, wow, that's a Yeti climbing up, the, up a slope in the Himalayas. So that turned out to be a, uh, that was a fake, wasn't it? It was made for some kind of show or yes. a video game or something. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, but that, was, that, that looked really good when I first saw it. I go, wow, so, no, that's a Yeti. But, uh, I mean, if you look at the evidence, there's only, like, in terms of photos, there's only one photograph. And that turned out to be a rock. Rock formation. And of course, okay. anytime you Google Yeti, you'll come up with the Shipton photos. So let's just lay that to rest and let everybody know what the Shipton photos might be. Well, the thing is, though, the problem with Shipton photos, I didn't find this out until a couple of years ago. They've always been put together with a trackway. Yes. Okay. If you look at the, you look at the books, there's a, there's a track. They got the with, the with with the you know the boot and the ice pick, and then there's a second photo where they show a trackway. Now that trackway was photographed somewhere else. Okay, that's hundred percent. So that track that's always shown that photograph, that was taken from a different part of the expedition, a right. different altitude. 
Okay, and that was basically put together in some book back in the 60s, and it's always been presented together as that track and that trackway. We, yeah, with the ice pick laying next to the track, right. Right, right. There's a, yeah, but then there's a, the second photo, they have a trackway. So they always have these two photos together, where you have uh, the, the footprint on one photo, and then the second photo beside usually shows a trackway through the forest, or through the snow, the snow field, Okay. So the fact is that they only photographed that one single track. They never actually photographed the trackway. Okay. So, and there's some evidence. Uh, if you read Messner's book, he talks about Shipton in that book. And there is some evidence that he might have actually faked that track. Okay. If you, if you read the book, it's it, it explained why. If you read the book, I think it's in the end of somewhere, they talk about Shipton and a guy by the name of Ernst Schaffer, a German naturalist who spent much of the 30s uh, in Nepal and Tibet, you know, collecting specimens and stuff, okay? Right. And so there, uh, so there is uh, some anecdotal evidence that maybe he actually faked those so he could, you know, get further funding for more expeditions in the future. Yeah, so basically, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, once again, I mean, in terms of actual tracks, I think there's only like, two official uh, tracks that are considered, you know, respectable. That's the Shipton tracks and then the Cronin tracks, I think, 1970, and that's it. And it's, the strange thing is, there haven't been any tracks made in the earth. It's all been on snowfields. Okay, no, nobody's ever produced a track like they have in North America where it was made, in, you know, in, in, you know, on the ground. Not once. And and so, you would think that at some point, if it was a living creature, especially that big, it would have to come down out of the snow at some point to get some greenage or water or something else, right? So there should be other evidence of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, theoretically, I mean, uh, it's interesting because when I was in Nepal, uh, the first thing I did was I went to a bookstore looking for Yeti books written by locals, and there's mm-hmm. only like basically one. There's only basically one Yeti researcher in Nepal. No kidding. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was actually well known. He's published books, and I actually bought wow. his book, and you can actually buy it on Amazon. It's an obscure book, and basically, it's the only only book on the Yeti is written by a Nepali. Oh my gosh. Okay, all the other books have been written by foreigners, right? So this guy knows the linguist, he knows the translations, and so on. And in his book, uh, it's called The Yeti Mystery. Guys, Professor Pond, he's a professor of uh, political science in Kamandu. Now, he's been researching Yeti since the late 60s. He's in his 70s now. And he's, 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 on, he's on the fence. He says it's 50-50. Hmm. Okay? So I think, I think the strange thing is when you're in Nepal, nobody's looking for nothing. Nepalis are looking for, for, for Yetis. Even though it's, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And is that maybe because they just accept it as a truth or because they, they don't accept it at all? Well, you know, I, 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 was in a, I was in a taxi up in northern India, in Sikkim, India, and my taxi driver was a former soldier in the army, and he was based on the Indian-Sikkim-Chinese-Tibetan border, mm. which historically was kind of the pathway of the Yetis they would move down from... Uh, Tibet down into Nepal to the Pelagiri, or sorry, Kachajunga region. So he was stationed there. This area is heavily fortified. So you've got the Chinese army on the north, you've got the Indian army on the south. And he was telling me, yeah, I mean, if you could get a Yeti, you'd be rich. Okay? Mm-hmm. Fine. Mm-hmm. So people know that if you could get a Yeti to catch one, photograph and kill one, you'd make a lot of money. And so I asked him about if he had heard of any reports, you know, being stationed there for almost two years as a soldier. He goes, no, but when he was a child back in the 70s, one of his school teachers, who was a Tibetan immigrant, who had, was a Tibetan refugee, he claimed to have seen one back in the 50s as he was crossing from Tibet over into Sikkim, over into northern India. 
So once again, almost all the stories seem to be coming out of the 50s. But uh, yeah, so you know, once again, there's there's no there's there's very little in terms of forensic, you know, nothing in terms of forensic evidence for the big for the Yeti, uh, and I'm pretty sure it's a bear uh, because historically, you know, they talked about three types of Yetis. Okay, if you read the classic books, they talk about the big Yeti, which lives up in the high altitude caves at fourteen thousand feet, mm-hmm. and then they have the human Yeti, the human sized Yeti, which kind of lives in the in the valleys and climbs these peaks and other things, and then you have the little Yeti in the more tropical jungles and and uh, northern India. Yeah, so elaborate more on on the bear theory for the Himalayan Yeti. Well, this, this bear theory was first proposed back in the 1930s. Okay, people were saying it's a bear, a bear that's kind of uh, I think in some regions they would, they would call it uh, the dancing bear. Okay, so bears that would kind of you know this would be kind of a subspecies of brown bear, Himalayan brown bear, that's not been identified. So a species that would have more kind of, uh, ex- more exceptional bipedal abilities. So basically these bears would take, you know, when they're running away, they would stand up and take a few extra strides bipedally mm. before and going on fours. Same thing, so they'd be fours. I mean, they weren't, they wouldn't be 100% bipedal. It's just the fact that behavior when threatened or when running away, they would take extra few steps using, you know, on, on, on twos. And and that would just aid them because of where they happen to live, and they would they would gain that ability over time. Yeah, for example, it's quite well known that, for example, gorillas in zoos will will learn to walk on on uh, on twos for extended periods of time to kind of watch over fences and peer over things mm, to look at very the very true. And, so, and then there's actually a couple of gorillas. Uh, there's a couple of photos that were published a couple of years ago where there's a couple of gorillas somewhere. I can't remember where they were. Maybe in the UK somewhere. That they would spell off their time walking on twos, looking over to see if people were coming over to feed them or something like that. Um. Okay. So I mean, I believe it to be a form of brown bear. Uh, in that book that you just bought, it's called. It's mentioned called a camel bear. Okay. Yeah, C A M O, right? Right, camel, or there's some versions where they call it a dremel, but right. uh, the idea, I mean, that hypothesis, I think, is pretty spot on, that it is some form of, of, of Himalayan brown bear subspecies that just has more bipedal abilities. You know that breaks okay. a lot of people's hearts, including mine, though, because we, we all want that massive bipedal creature that nobody has any idea about, and you don't want it to be a bear. I mean, I mean, that's the sad thing is that you're up in the mountains. I mean, when I was up in the Himalayas, I've got my binoculars. I'm looking at these mountain peaks that are surrounding me, these 20,000 20, mm. foot peaks. And then you'll see something like, hey, look, oh, yeah, that could be it. It's like an outcrop of a rock or something. Right, right. And you're looking at that, and you're just staring at that, and you're saying, wow, imagine if that was actually a Yeti. He would just be looking at you, then he'd walk away. And he's, oftentimes, he's just looking at, you know, at the, the peaks of these mountains, which are not very far away, and you get a good view of them with your binoculars. And you just imagine that you would see something walking along a ridge, you know. Mm. And it, it, but then when you think about it, it's almost illogical to think about a, a primate living up in those kind of climatic conditions. Right. You know? it, I mean, it really doesn't fit, does it? No, I mean the only other. I mean the theory that I have. I mean, well, hypothesis that could that I mean there could be species megafauna, you know, primate megafauna. You know how we have uh, we have mastodons and mammoths, right? Right. Those are cold weather elephants. Theoretically, why couldn't there have a cold weather type of megafauna primate? Okay. In Australia, the Yowie researchers they don't believe that Yowie is a primate. They believe it's some kind of marsupial megafauna. You no, know, especially for the North American uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch phenomenon. 
I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the famous or infamous Yeti scalp at the uh, the Pengboche Monastery. I don't know if I said that right, but yeah, Pengboche Monastery. Yeah. yeah, I mean they have they had that ceremonial scalp. I think the, the they did DNA research on the hand a few years ago. I think the bone was lost and was found again, and it turned to be processed from a Chinese monk. Yeah. So once again, there are these. I mean, that's another thing you know that's really puzzling about the, you know this hominids. There's there's no artifacts. You know, I mean, it's been proved that this Cambodian scalp and hand those were ceremonial artifacts, man. Okay. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about about the Bigfoot, though, I mean, in, in Sasquatch, there's nobody, no, none of the native groups. I mean, I'm from British Columbia, so I'm quite familiar with you know the various groups, you know, the up around the Pacific Coast there. And none of them have some kind of uh, artifact, you know. Nobody yeah. has an artifact. So you would think there would be similar things like the Pondachi hand, the scalp would be found somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest. You know, the Nootka, the Salish Indians, or the Kwakatoa, up further up north, they would have something. But nobody has anything, fortunately. And actually, that's a good segue to the last segment. And it's you sent a trail cam photo of. You title it basically Shadow Animal. And right. we have spoken before, and I told you of my shadow person experience. Right. And so I, I do want to touch on that and see what you think about the paranormal side of all of these creatures that we've spoken about. And we've already t- you've already touched on the fact that some of these people think they are spirit animals, and they're not even right. of this realm. So let's touch on that for a little bit. Right, so I'll just go back to Orang Pendic. I mean, Orang Pendic, uh, one of the one of the common names for Orang Pendic, which hasn't been wasn't reported before, uh, they call it Tirao. Okay, and a lot of they had the word Hantu to it. So Hantu Tirao, and the word Hantu means spirit in Malaysian, or sorry, Indonesian. So a lot of people call Orang Pendic Hantu Tirao, the spirit Tirao. Uh, so in terms of Orang Pendic, fifty percent of the people who reported these creatures, about half of is they claim that the creature's feet turned around. They were backwards. Okay. Okay. And as a result, Orang Pendic is often called Orang Pendic Akitribalik, mm. which translates to short person with turned around. So about half the others have claimed that the feet were turned around backwards. Yeah, so, so as I was saying, about half the eyewitnesses claim that the Orang Pendic's feet are turned backwards, and as a result, it's often called Orang Pendic Akitribalik which means a short person with feet turned around or feet backwards. And this is actually quite a disturbing operation coming from a seasoned woodsman. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there is a supernatural aspect to it. Uh, uh, there's other aspects. Some people claim that Orange Panda can actually talk. Okay? There are some legends saying that it will babble in a strange language before it flees. Mm. Yeah, that's related to me on several occasions. Uh, well, you know, I believe it to be some kind of uh, creature. Others believe it to be some kind of a witch doctor or shaman animal. Wow. So it's a biological animal, but at the same time it possesses powers like a shaman doctor. Okay, that's another another version I've heard. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this, 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 this photo that I photographed is very strange because I've been unable to identify it. Uh, uh, I've shown it to other Indonesians. They say it's hantu, which means spirit or ghost. Okay, and this thing actually was there. It actually triggered the camera. Uh, it jumped on a piece, on a five-foot stick that we had baited with bananas, knocked the stick over, and mm. it appeared to be, it appeared to have fallen off of the stick. 
Okay, so this family kind of jumped on the stick and then put the, the, you know, put the stick uh, against the tree afterwards. Put it on my blog there. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we had the trail cameras there, which triggered. It's not just like a black, you know, black plastic bag or something on the floor. It actually jumped up, knocked, fell on top of the stick, and then basically somehow the stick was then put against, against the tree afterwards. So very, very strange. Yeah, it has a shape to it. I mean, it doesn't look like just a bag or something. There's definitely a shape. It, yeah, there's definitely a shape. There's no eye shine. Because usually almost all the time, I mean, almost everything you capture, there's always eye shine of some sort. Even if it's just like a little little mouse or something, there's always eye shine. Okay? Right. There's no eye shine on it. It's just kind of, and it almost kind of blends in with the background as well. Okay? There seems to be something that looks like a tail. I mean, it possibly could be some kind of a langur. Okay? Are these banded langurs over there? Uh, possibly could be one of those they are in the vicinity, but uh, just the whole situation of that stick being knocked down and being found leaning against a tree the next morning. You know, I mean, it's, I, it's kind of weird. I'm pretty sure that when we spoke last time, I said that the last thing that I want is for Bigfoot or a Yeren or a Yeti or a Mawas or any of these to be paranormal because we won't find out what they are. Um, right. I don't know what you feel about that, but that's my take on it, and I've said it time and time again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I, I believe that certain certain cryptids, cryptids are flesh and blood, and others could be possibly more paranormal. I can't group them all as being, you know, uh, being flesh and blood, and all, or on the opposite side being paranormal. I think some are possibly real. For example, this Orang, this Orang Dalam, Orang Mawas. Maybe that was the last one that was sighted back in 1970. You know. Mm. I mean, for every species, before it dies out, there's always one last solitary individual left. So do you think that. then that the fact that the reports stop, that almost lends more credence to it then? Because then you're like, well, that was the last one, and that was the last evidence we have of it. Yeah, and now we have to look for kind of, you know, kind of, you know, some kind of remains somewhere in some right. remote cave or something. You know, I mean, that's something I've been looking at as well. I mean, you can't find a living version. Well, there must be someone who must have died recently somewhere, and we can possibly find his remains somewhere, yeah. maybe in a cave or, you know, that's always a possibility as well. But yeah, it's very difficult. So a lot of times, I mean, if you look at these, a lot of these classic reports were in the 50s and 60s, you know, for the Yeti as well, and there's been nothing coming up, even with the, you know, the Orang Dalam, you know, the, nothing really serious about the year, and we probably would have heard about it, you know, the Chinese yeah. media would have written something about it, somebody would have blogged something about it, uh, you know, I mean, the only other one that that I that another one that might be supernatural might be the Yowie of Australia. I'm not sure if you if you've, if you've read anything about the Yowies. I was down there two times in a couple of, in a couple of the hot spots there. And once again, it is a strange situation with the Yowie. I mean, the the, the, the Yowie hunters they say it's a marsupial megafauna. Okay, mm-hmm. something like like a you know something like a giant kangaroo with a tail that kind of looks like a gorilla. Mm. Okay, and at the same time, they, there, you know, there's a lot of sightings coming out the last couple of years. Lots of sightings of this thing crossing roads, but once again, almost not very little in terms of footprints or tracks. And how do you explain that, right? It, 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 it's difficult because when I was interviewing park rangers who were in one of the most famous parks, uh, Springbrook National Park, where historically there have been lots of sightings since the, since the 70s, mm-hmm. and these guys worked there, you know, five days a week, you know, 40 hours a week during the forest there. And they told me that they had seen nothing to indicate that there would be a massive bipedal creature living in that um. area. Okay. So they were pretty sure that there's not there. But at the same time, they mentioned, well, one of my friends saw something on a different mountain a couple of hours south. 
you know. Yeah, I have uh, I have a contact there in Australia. His name is Jamie. Oh, really? Where about? Um, I don't know the exact area that he goes. I I would have to reference that. I haven't spoken to him actually in a long time, but he and his he took his family out there once, and he swore he would never do it again. That if he went back there, it would just be him because he it was his wife and his daughter, and he swore he would never take them back there again because whatever it was came very close and it was throwing things and knocking on things very much like the American Bigfoot is right, reported right. to do. Yeah. And it scared them very, very badly. So I, I'll have to actually contact him, but um, he, he just said there's, there's something going on here that I uh, can't really classify. And he said, it's something that, is very smart and it right. can throw things and it can grip things. Right. So it's not like right. some like kangaroo, like kicking rocks around. Um, it, right. Right. it, it was very, uh, it had a pinpoint accuracy with what it was doing as far as at their right. camp. And do you know where he, where he, where this sighting occurred? Which part of Australia? I don't actually. I haven't even spoken or referenced him for probably six months. I'll have to look that up. And actually, we'll yeah, me and you will talk more about this because I need to contact okay. him. His name is Jamie, right. and he's all he's always been very open with me as far as what's right. going on there. And he has gone back there at least one time since then. Um, but he vowed to me that he's like I'm. And it wasn't because I was admonishing him, but he said, I'm not taking my wife and my kid back there because uh, they were scared. He says, I was scared. I, he, he admitted he was scared because of what was going on there. Yeah, because I, I've been down there twice already. I've been in the Springbrook on the Gold Coast and in the Blue Mountains as well, doing my own research. Uh, so definitely, I'd be very keen on finding out where these encounters did take place. Because I'm actually looking at going to Australia possibly in December, January. In fact, um, uh, he would be someone that it would be good to get you guys talking back and forth. Okay. He would be a yeah, good I mean, Australian contact. He would be the best that I could think of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've been down there twice already. I've been down to the so-called hot spots, uh, the Blue Mountains and Springbrook National right. Park. Uh, like I said, you know, the, the stories of these uh, Yowies that they're a lot more aggressive. Okay? Yes, yeah, they, come, been, they I, come very close yeah. from what I hear. Yeah, apparently they, they tend to be more aggressive. I, I think, I mean, there are stories where people have been found, you know, dead in the forest and so on, but yeah. apparently say it was Yahweh's or anything. But yeah, they, they tend to be, from, from the books that I've read on them and from the reports around the internet, yeah, they tend to be a little more aggressive, you know, more confrontational. And in some ways, that would be good because you could probably get, you know, photographic evidence. A absolutely. See, and I wonder because why that is, Dan. Why do you think that in some areas they're they're more aggressive. Why is well, that? They, you know, I think it's just like other animals, like bears, they have their own territory. Mm. You know, they might have young over there. So I think it's just kind of a, a normal biological response. If you've got your own territory, you've got young, you've got little babies, whatever. So maybe the smaller the territory, the more aggressive the the animal, the creature, the being, whatever it is. Yeah, I think they're just protecting their population. I mean, yeah. almost, all the almost all the stories going on that it's not threatening. The yeah. are not threatening. I guess there's only one one story I've heard where the guy was actually scared and he climbed up a tree. Otherwise, people, they kind of, they, they're, they, oh, I saw an orc panic, but they're not going to be, you know, yelling and screaming about it. That, you know, they're being terrified by it. 
So it, it's almost kind of like it's it's kind of accepted of existence. But yeah, Yahweh. I mean, the story's coming out there. I mean, it, it, it's it's a little more aggressive. Also, the interesting thing is there's a lot of reports saying it's also moves on all fours. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some stories I've read. I mean, there's basically one Yeti book on the subject. Uh, on the uh, sorry, on Yahweh's. There's only one Yahweh book. And uh, there's quite a few cases in that book where the, the person saw the thing going on all fours, mm. and then, then it went on twos, picked up a wallaby, and then went back on all fours. Oh, again. my goodness. Right. So once again, I mean, like I said, the, the, most of the, Yow, the Yowie uh, researchers, they don't believe that to be a primate. Okay, so I was, I was corresponding on a, on a forum a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and they were saying, no, I, they don't believe it to be a primate. They believe it to be some kind of megafauna, marsupial megafauna. Okay. Not all of them, but most of them, the serious researchers, they, they, they're, because a lot of the tracks are quite bizarre. Some of the uh, tracks probably have, like, uh, the hands have only three fingers, three digits. Okay. Okay. The toes, some have four, even three toe tracks. And, so and is that long. the divergent toe, or more the normal, like a, like a human foot, a, all in line? It's a, foot, it's a Bigfoot toe, basically. Okay. A Bigfoot foot. Okay, so what, at least, I mean, like I said, there's a limited number of casts, and the ones that have been cast are considered to be authentic. Uh, they are basically almost similar to a Bigfoot, but apparently the hand markings are more claw-like, and that's one of the mm. features they've discussed. A lot of the reports has actually claws. But, uh, yeah, so that's very fascinating. Uh, you know, actually, that's the probably the second most reported hominid outside of Bigfoot is the Yowie. Okay, I mean, there are reports almost on a monthly basis coming out of Australia. Well, that's and a good a result, sign. I think, I, yeah, so I think, especially with aggressive nature, I mean, it's probably a good bet that you could possibly, if you get it, you know, get it kind of upset and mad, you could possibly get it photographed. That's what it seemed like, because I remember Jamie, he put up some kind of, it's been a long time since I've talked to him. I need to, uh, he hasn't come up in my mind for a while. I need to, uh, to email him, but he put up some balloons or something and... He was trying to, you know, gain some attention from these things, and he did right. it. And you're right, though, but they came in, and they were like, hey, what, basically, what the hell are you doing in my area? Get out. And they were very, very forward in their actions to try to get them, them meaning his family, out of their right. area. Right, right. I mean, I mean, that would be a goal. I mean, that would be a an opportunity to go to a place like that by yourself or with a friend. Do you think these things, and we can go down the line, each one, but for the most part, can these things see whatever might a trail cam put out? I, I this is a lot of saying that they can sense light and so on. I'm not so sure. Very much of primates you can capture all with trail cams. You know, tigers, you know, all sorts of animals. So I'm not really sure they can actually see these lights and avoid them. Mm. Uh, that's just my opinion on the subject. But definitely, I think, it's, I mean, if you can photograph people trekking through the forest, I mean, I think it's possible that uh, if it's a truly a biological creature, it should be able to be photographed. Here, here's but hoping it's a biological life. creature. Yeah, if it, I think if it's, a, if it's a normal biological creature, Forest, uh, you know, flash blood. It should be should be able to catch it on trail, on trail cam. Sooner later. Well, Dan, let everyone know where they can find you. Where's the best place? For you, or I've got a I've got a blog, Zoological Enigmas of Asia. I've got a small YouTube channel as well. And uh, yeah, but definitely, I'm, I'm looking at expanding into other 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 hominids. 
and definitely going back to the Yowie as well. And, uh, and uh, my next project will be Hobbit. And you'll be including those in your blog as well? All the updates will be there? Yeah, basically, my, my project now is I'm not. There's a lot of stuff about hobbits being written uh, in the media, and you know, there's been a lot of research on. Now, the funny thing is that all this research has been on the island of Flores, but if you go about a couple hundred miles north, there's an even bigger island called Sulawesi. And when I was on this island back in 2013, I, I was hearing reports that people have actually seen hobbits in that area, in, on that island in the mm. south. And when I got back to Thailand, I researched it, and apparently, there, you know, every single year there's a couple of articles on the internet. One, I think last year, apparently there are hobbit sightings in a very remote corner of the island, so I hope to investigate those possibly in September. So, and the thing is, though, this area has a long, long history of, uh, of legends and stories on a pygmy tribe. Wow. Okay. So this is not something that somebody just oh, okay, we'll, we'll invent some kind of story, but there's a long tradition in this area about a pygmy tribe, which they call Suku Oni, or the Oni tribe. So Bayern, basically, this is a, a, a group of pygmies that live deep in the forest, live in caves, and they have tools, and they occasionally venture out into, you know, onto plantations and the edges of villages, and so on, like, and other things. So uh, it's something that hasn't been investigated, to the best of my knowledge, so I'll be attempting that in, in September. Well, good luck on that. And once you go out there, we'll have to have you back on. Well, definitely. And like I said, you know, I'd like, I'd like to get in contact with that Yowie researcher and possibly head down to Australia later this year, early next year. Yeah, I mean, and the great thing about, uh, about the Yowies is you don't really have to have a guide or porter or anything, you know? Right. There are so many trails. There are so many trails. And I mean, I when I was trekking the Blue Mountains, you can trek for six, seven, eight hours. And you won't see anybody. And you and they have very well, very good, well maintained trails in Australia. So it doesn't. Can, it doesn't seem as political there as other places. Yeah, I mean these are national parks. I mean, I you know you pay your your, your campground fee or whatever, right. and as long as the park's not official, the trail's not closed. There's no reason you can't be there. Right. You know, and the great thing is they have all these trails, and you can just trek for basically you know hours and hours alone, and and you could you know you could possibly encounter something. And you don't need to have a big, you know, big setup. You don't need to have porters and guides. You just get local hiking maps, and you're on your own. So, in some ways, that kind of uh, that kind of solo research really, really uh, inspires me. It really motivates me to try it. The Yowie does kind of, I mean, in terms of the Yowie phenomenon, it does kind of parallel the Bigfoot phenomenon. It's being seen recently, being seen consistently. People are seeing it. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, there's once again, there's no photographic evidence for Yowies. There's a couple of photos, but uh, nothing really too too convincing. Yeah. Historically, there's, there's a couple of hot spots, the one being you know, the Gold Coast hinterlands and the other spot being the Blue Mountains just uh, just, just uh, west of Sydney. All very accessible as well. Yeah, I'd hazard to say it's one of those two, the hot spots. But um, in the next couple of days, I'll make sure to uh, to get back to you on that. Yeah, that would be great because, like I said, I, I'm looking at actually going to Australia probably December, January. Because uh, I've only been there twice, and it's such an ma- amazing place to go. And there's yeah. no language barrier. Amazing scenery. The beaches are just mind blowing. You know, lots of wild animals, crocs, great whites, yowies. So if you're a nature lover, it's the place to be for sure. <laughs> it, it reminds me of Florida, to where like most things are trying to kill you. That's kind of the thing I say about Florida. So. 
Yeah, I guess in, in some ways it could be like Florida. Yeah, there's a lot of things <laughs> out there that can eat you. Yeah. <laughs> or, if it, or if it stings you, you have about two hours and you have, you have to get to a hospital. Right, right. But then again, uh, there's no reports of you always eating anybody, so maybe we're safe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they don't come close enough to eat you. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on Into the Fray. I'll be in touch with you, all right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'll send you some photos today as well for your website. Thank you all so right. much, Dan. Thank you, Shannon, uh, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Find Dan on his blog, hominid-hunter.blogspot.com, and his YouTube channel, Tatraman67. That's T-A-T-R-A-M-A-N-6-7. Well, I'm so-and-so. I was given this name by my parents. I've been to such and such a college. I've done these things in my profession. I produce a little bar. Buddha says, forget it. That's not true. That's some story. That's all gone. That's all past. I want to see the real you you are now. But nobody knows who that is. Because we don't uh, know ourselves except through listening to our echoes consulting our memories. But then there's a real evil, and that again leads us back to this question. Uh, who are you? That is the real We shall see how they play with this exam by the cohorts to get you to come out of your shell and find out who you really are.
Straight, 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 straight. 